Father God, we thank you that you love us. You have loved us. You have sent your precious son into this world at Christmas time to redeem for himself a people. We thank you that we wait as those who look ahead to the day he returns for us. We thank you that you give us a picture of what that day will look like so that we will keep going, that we will hold fast to the gift that he is to us. Lord Jesus, please might you speak to us this morning through your words. Might you bring this picture of an awesome reality that awaits those who are in Christ. Might you, you bring that and impress it on our minds. Might you help us believe and sense the reality of this promise that is as good as done. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope the picture's going to come up on screen uh, of uh, a lady called Florence Chadwick, um, a swimmer uh, from 1952. Turns out they don't make goggles like they used to, do they? Uh, I don't know if you've heard of Florence. She uh, was a, a big open water swimmer. Uh, by this point in her career, had been pretty accomplished, had swum the Channel, British Channel, twice, uh, both directions. And in 1952, she set out on a foggy and chilly morning on the swim from the island of Catalina to California. So that's about a 20-mile uh, to swim. And this swim was gruelling. Uh, I have to say, I, I find the idea of swimming for an hour terrifying. 15 hours, gruelling. The weather was terrible. She absolutely begged her coach, who was in the, the boat next to her, that she would stop, that he would pull her out. And he said, no, keep going. Keep going. You're almost there. Keep going. And so she swam and she swam until finally she stopped. She was mentally and physically exhausted. She just simply stops. And the team had to pull her out and put her in the boat. Uh, of course, the boat then went back to the shore of California, only to find through the fog that she was a mere half a mile from the shore. Uh, the next morning, she went to a press conference that was planned, and she said, look, I, I don't want to make excuses, but I think if I could have seen that shore, I could have swum it. If, if I'd seen how close I was, I could have made it. It's a powerful story that stayed with me of how important it is that we would see what is ahead. Uh, we might not have open water swimming. I'm sure we have tried other things where we, where we can tell how demoralizing it is when we don't know how far we are from the future. No, we need to see what's ahead of us in order to keep going, particularly when something is tough. Over these last uh, few weeks, we've been thinking about Christmas uh, from a number of angles. We thought about the promise of Christmas. Back in Genesis chapter 3, uh, as a solution to our sin, God promises that he will send someone who is going to crush the serpent's head. Uh, last week, we thought about the arrival of that promise in the Lord Jesus at that first Christmas. The greatest gift, the gift that uh, the shepherds sing with joy about. The Savior is here. Uh, but this morning, we're thinking about, in a sense, what that Christmas gift promises. What does that Christmas gift look forward to? Why did Jesus come down that first Christmas? And the answer is that it's for this, for this future that he promises his people. 
Uh, in thinking about um, this passage this week, I'm struck by some words that came to mind from the end of 2 Timothy, where Paul is speaking about Christians. Uh, I don't know if you remember how he speaks about Christians in 2 Timothy chapter 4, but he talks about Christians as being those who long for Jesus' appearing. Uh, isn't that a lovely way of talking about Christians? We should be those who are longing for this day, this day that Jesus comes back. Uh, forget the excitement of counting down uh, the days until Christmas. We should be counting down the days until Jesus returns and brings this future. What is this future? Verse 1, it is a new creation. Uh, what does John say? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Uh, God promises that he is going to make this world, the heavens, new. He's going to recreate it. There is a, a, a transfer that's going to happen. This is going to perish and there is going to be a replacement. And he gives us in this passage two, if you like, pictures for us to get what is going on here. Uh, if you've read the book of Revelation, it is full of these kind of wonderful pictures that sort of merge themselves. And if you, if you try to draw what was going on, you get confused. But the idea is that it's trying to uh, convey to us something that is glorious, something that can only be kind of uh, presented in the, the amalgamation of these pictures, often very key biblical ideas. Uh, just to say that at this, book of, at this part of the book of Revelation, uh, John has seen a vision of what is happening up until this point, which has climaxed with Satan himself, that serpent, being uh, thrown into the fire. He's been dealt with, finally, for good. These final chapters, this is about the reality for us as God's people, those who trust in Jesus. Well, what are the two pictures? Uh, the first picture is this. It is a great wedding. Look at verse 2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. John looks at this vision. What does he see? He sees a bride, a city bride that we'll come back to in a moment. Uh, I'm sure that we know that weddings are expensive affairs. Uh, I looked up this week that apparently we would spend between one and two thousand pounds simply on a wedding dress. Uh, that's a lot of money. Um, uh, I th think probably for most people that might be the most expensive bit of clothing they ever buy. Uh, and of course, a wedding requires a lot more preparation, lots more getting ready, lots more expense. Why, why do we spend so much on a wedding? Well, on the one hand, we could say that we do spend too much. I'm sure we could spend less on a wedding and that would still be fine. But the fact we spend so much is underlining that it's a significant time, isn't it? A significant occasion. There is great joy anticipating the union uh, that is going to be unbreakable other than death. So, so is the theory. This is uh, wonderful promises made between bride and groom a new unit is being formed. It's a time of great celebration, a, a day to get ready for. Well, when you think about the day that Jesus returns, do you think about that as being our great wedding day? That is the day we should be counting down to. This is the day we will see our Lord Jesus face to face and he will marry us. Uh, do you see how John sees the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down? Uh, this, again, is a, is a weird thing, imagining someone marrying a city. What's going on here? Well, the, the, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, that's describing us as God's people. This is, as it were, the church universal throughout uh, time and space. Prepared 
ready for this final union when we see our Lord face to face. And you see, this perfect union cannot be destroyed even by death, because there is no more death in this new creation. But here's the amazing thing. I reckon as we, we think about that final wedding day, we, we could sense the joy of being able to see Jesus, our Savior, the one who's loved us, to be able to see him face to face, to imagine and picture the joy that we will have in beholding him and being with him, knowing nothing can ever take us away from him. But do you realize that on this day, it is not only us that's going to be rejoicing. No, on this day, as we are prepared, beautifully dressed for our husband, the Lord Jesus, he is going to be blown away by us as people. He is going to rejoice over us, his people. Uh, Listen to these words from Isaiah 62 uh, that speak of this day. God promises, as a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. And as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Does that that astound you? That the Lord Jesus is going to be rejoicing, delighting over us, that we're kind of, you know, in a sense, going to take his breath away at this final day? I mean, just think about a wedding maybe you've been to recently. You know, you're sat there in the church. Maybe you're waiting for a long time for the bride to arrive, but they're getting ready. And they turn up and you hear that sort of, you know, hushed kind of, oh, they're there, they're there. You know, everyone turns to the back to look for that moment. The bride comes down, beautifully dressed. Everyone admires, takes photos. Where do people look next? Well, maybe it's just me, but the next thing I do is I look at the groom. What does the groom make of what's happening? And usually, uh, I think pretty much in, in every experience I've had, the groom's face is delighted. They're beaming with joy. Yes, wow. Look how beautiful she is. See, it's a wonderful picture. This union of, of both God's people and Jesus truly seeing one another and delighting in what is ahead, a committed relationship for the rest of time. See, we've seen as we've gone through this mini-series, haven't we, that we are, we are those who live under the curse of sin. And we thought about last week of that incurable diagnosis we've been given. I think many of us, most of us, all of us, really struggle to imagine that Jesus would look at us and delight over us. But the promise here, as incredible as it is, is that he will make us perfect. See, maybe we even feel despair this morning over just how little we love Jesus. Maybe we feel despair over how much we even sense his love. This feels good in theory, but we don't feel this. Our heart isn't stirred by this. I want you to hear this. Jesus came down at Christmas to prepare you for this day. And that is a job that he's going to get done. Uh, Notice that the bride has been dressed, has been clothed. You see, the bride doesn't get to make these clothes. These are clothes that are given to the bride by the groom. 
When Jesus came to die for us, he didn't just get us sort of into God's kingdom. He came to make us new creations. He came to wash us, to cleanse us, to equip us and and move us by his spirit to be working out new garments, if you like. And in that new creation state, fully perfected, he will look at us and say, wow. Uh, I'm reminded of uh, some words from an old hymn that put it this way, talking about Jesus and seeking the church. It says, from heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her and for her life he died. See, when we think about Christmas, when we think about the gospel story, we are truly thinking about the greatest love story ever. It is the love story that every other love story is a, is a pale imitation, a pale pointer. Jesus didn't just come to die for our debt of sin as some sort of abstract arithmetic between us and God. He came for us to cleanse us, to make us clean, to make us those who are beautiful to him in whom he will rejoice. And as his bride, we together as his people will rejoice in him forever. I wonder, can we, do we see how this picture, if you like, this shoreline changes the way that we think about life here and now? You see, if Jesus is coming back for this day and we will be made fully perfect, surely this gives us fresh perseverance, fresh zeal, that we would be working out this growth, that we would, as it were, be getting ready, yes, imperfectly in this life. But every time we, we put sin to death, Every time we love our brother and sister and make sacrifices for them, every time we work out Christ's love in our lives, that is part and parcel of us getting ready for this great and final wedding day. Do we long for it? Do we want to grow? Do we believe that we can? The encouragement is, he will. A great wedding. That's our first picture. Uh, But secondly, look at now the second picture we're given, which is that of a perfect home. Uh, Look at verse 3. John has seen something, now he hears something. That happens in Revelation quite a lot. And there are basically two ways of of sort of talking about the same thing. What does does he now hear? Verse 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, behold, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. God is not just going to marry us as his people. He is making his home with us. We will be able to see him face to face. We'll be able to walk with him, just like Adam and Eve could walk with him back in the garden. And we will live in that relationship of him as God, us as his people, Perfectly knowing his provision and protection. Perfectly trusting and enjoying him and his goodness for all of time. See, the wonderful thing about uh, this picture is the absence of a temple. I wonder if you've noticed that or noticed that in the past. Neither in uh, Revelation 21 or 22 do we see a temple. Now, if you thought about the Bible and you think about the, the story from the beginning to the end... The temple was the sign of God's presence with his people. This was a special place that he said he would dwell with them in their midst. 
And yet part and parcel of each of those temples, as much as it underlined God being with his people, it also underlined, as it were, his absence. So the Old Testament temple, you, you, you could see him. He was there amongst the people. Uh, sometimes they even beheld his glory in that temple. And yet they couldn't go in. They couldn't access the inner parts where God really was. Now, that was, that was for the, the high priest once a year. Oh, we see that, that picture change when Jesus comes into this world. He comes as God's temple because he is God in the flesh. And yet he is only one place at any one time. He dies. He rises. He goes back to his father. Now he lives in us, his people, as the church. We are the temple. And yet there still is a world, if you like, which is set up, separated from God. There is still a, a limit to his presence. On this final day, his presence will be full and complete. It will be expansive over all of this new creation. He will dwell with us. We will be his people. If you're here this morning and you're, you're not a Christian, but you're kind of thinking about these things, uh, you might have heard lots of very weird things about what heaven is like. I have to say, most of the time people talk about heaven, they are not describing a new creation. Usually it's some sort of ethereal, sort of spiritual cloudiness, which rightly sounds boring. That's not what the Bible says. We're going to see this is a, a new creation, this world fixed and made right, made better. But I don't want you to miss this. At the centre and heart of why this new creation is such good news, it starts with God. If you like, if, if your imagination of what the future holds could take God out of it, theoretically, you, you haven't got the goodness of what is promised. Because it is the relationship with God at the very heart of this new creation that transforms the rest of life. Uh, look at what we're told about what this life looks like in verse 4, which really is unpacking uh, the idea, actually, in verse 2, of not having sea any longer. Now, if you, like me, enjoy the sea, that sounds a bit of a shame, doesn't it? Oh, no more sea, no more sailing, uh, no more, you know, I guess you don't need sea for a beach, but it would feel a bit weird to have a beach without a sea. Uh, that's not the point here, right? The point is that the sea in the Bible is the place that threats to God's people come from. The sea is the source of chaos. Now, there's no longer going to be any sea, and we're going to see that worked out in life. What does that look like? Verse 4. God, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Death no longer. Mourning no longer. Crying no longer. Pain no longer. There is going to be no hospitals, no drugs companies, no police force, no disaster relief charities, no food banks. The list goes on and on. This is going to be an utterly perfect world. These things, no, they, they've passed away. This new creation is going to be perfect. And as I put at the start of the verse, tears will be no longer. Thinking about verse four, I was just thinking about wiping away someone's tears from their eyes. I don't, 
I don't know how many of us kind of experience that regularly or have experienced that. that that's an incredibly sort of intimate thing to do, isn't it? You, you, don't, you don't walk up to a stranger and start wiping their tears away. Uh, you might get tears yourself uh, <laughs> for doing that. But that is how God describes this moment. But here's the wonderful thing. What, what does God do when he welcomes us into this new creation? He, he doesn't just say, look, I've made a brand new world. Here's a box of tissues. Cheer up. No need to be, uh, be uh, sad anymore. He doesn't sort of distract us. What does he do? He wipes away our tears. See, when you wipe away someone's tears, you're, you're doing two things, I think. You're, you're validating those tears, aren't you? They're real tears. You're entering into the fact that this is sad, this is painful, and yet you comfort. And that is exactly what God is going to do for us. He will wipe each and every one of our tears from our eyes. He will validate the pain, the suffering, the sadness in this broken world. And he will bring it to an end forever. You see, some of us will cry more than others. But crying is entirely appropriate. It is entirely right for this world. Uh, even just thinking about us as a church family, just, just think about the many sad, horrific things that we have experienced, are maybe experiencing. A tragic bereavement that comes entirely out of the blue. Betrayal by those we trusted those who were close to us, being slandered and misrepresented, lied about, experiencing miscarriage, cancer diagnosis, chronic illness day by day, mental assailment. The list goes on. There are many, many things that even if we, we don't let on to others that we cry about, surely in our hearts we cry about these things. You know, when Jesus returns, your cheeks will be fresh with tears. But this is our hope. This is what's going to help us keep going. He will wipe every one of them away. He will acknowledge them. And he will comfort us in them. Then we will cry no longer. How we need to encourage one another in this. Tears are always a pointer forward to this new creation. Uh, there can be comfort in this world. And we should give thanks for that. But many of our tears we will never get over until the day where we see Jesus face to face. That is our hope. That is what we press on to. That is why Jesus came down in Christmas. To make a perfect home. Well, this future is so good, so, if you like, hard to believe that God needs to underline it for us. Do you see that in verse 5? Where he says again, he's making everything new. Then he tells us, write this down. Get it in ink. Write it down on paper. Because these words are trustworthy and true. It's God's way of saying, look, I don't want you to live in any uncertainty about what is going to happen. I want you to set this before your eyes. I want you to cling to this with great hope. This is what's going to help you keep going. 
And that's because this future is only for the thirsty. Um, it's a sobering way that this passage ends, isn't it? I don't know if you noticed that when we read. Because not everyone is going to inherit this future. Verse 8, we're told that the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. See, this is a picture of those who pursue un ungodliness. If you like, those who, who prefer ugliness to beauty. And the sobering thing is it's telling us that what we believe will shape how we live. Now, we need to be really clear, and as we'll see this in a moment, to inherit this future, it's not about making ourselves acceptable to God. It's not about earning it. And yet here, it seems that there are people who probably would have called themselves believers. I think we see that because of the... The emphasis at the start of this on the cowardly and the unbelieving, they're, they're those who maybe have claimed something about Jesus, but they've not persevered. They've not hung on. They've been enticed away to the world. They've decided to give in to sin rather than to fight it. In a sense, they have chosen life in opposition to God. God warns us in a sobering way that that is the path that leads to death. A death that we all deserve. A death that Adam and Eve deserved from day one. A death that God has been patiently delaying in order to give every opportunity for us to turn around, to come to him. Uh, the warning for us, uh, if we are those who, who don't know Jesus, but particularly if we know him, or we would say we know him, how we live really does matter. What we believe about Jesus should change how we live Oh, we thought about this when we were just thinking about that marriage picture. If, if Jesus, our great saviour, our great bridegroom is coming back for us, there is a desire there, isn't there, to, to grow, to be beautiful for him. The picture here is of those who've become cold-hearted towards Jesus. They've become cold-hearted towards the gospel news, and that shows in a life that lives increasingly in opposition to God. See, I think we need to be careful when we read kind of descriptions like this to sort of assume that there's something magic about these particular sins. No, we, we'll all suffer with these sins. We, we all wrestle with these sins. Who of us isn't an idolater? Who of us doesn't struggle with lying? No, the warning here is, is I think, helping us focus our minds on what that true gift is, why Jesus would come in the first place, why he would come down at Christmas, and that's super clear in verse 6. He has come for the thirsty. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Uh, to be thirsty, you, you need to have need. You need to lack something that you desire, in this case, water. Uh, and we thought about this, actually, when we looked at a passage in, in John 4, when John was preaching to us over the summer this, this is a, a picture of, of life with God, of, of a relationship with him that Jesus is saying that Jesus has come for those who, who realize they need him, who thirst for him. It's another way of, of putting what is said in the Beatitudes of those being blessed, being those who are poor in spirit. 
those who, when they think about our lives, who think about our current state before God, realize how deeply and permanently we need ongoing forgiveness and life that comes only through Jesus. See, it's, it's this promise, this promise of one coming with water to quench our thirst. That is what we need to keep clinging on to. That is what makes the difference as to where we end up. How do we, how do we get this wonderful new creation? It is simply by thirsting for Jesus. Isn't God great? Uh, he puts it in verse 7 in a different way. Those who are victorious will inherit this. And I will be their God and they will be my, my children. Uh, notice this is something that's given. It's something that's inherited. Again, it's not, it's not earned or deserved. But here, John picks up a word that is really significant in Revelation. It's the victorious who get this. Now, when we hear the word victorious, we might be thinking that that's kind of going in the wrong direction. You know, that, that sounds like it's the, the hardcore Christians who are going to make it. No, in the book of Revelation, the victorious ones, the ones who keep going, they are simply the ones who stay loyal to Jesus. That no matter what, he is so precious to them uh, that they keep holding on. Uh, we see this really clearly, I think, if you uh, want to look in chapter 12, uh, where uh, we're told about those who triumph. And this is, this is how it's put in chapter 12, verse 11. They triumphed over him, that is Satan, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They triumphed by what Jesus did. And by what they believe about what Jesus did. That's where their victory comes. And so they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. It is a picture who have realized, people who have realized that their thirst, the life that they, they desire with God, this perfect marriage relationship, this perfect home can only come through what Jesus accomplishes on the cross. We do not deserve this glorious future, not one ounce of it. And yet the breathtaking love of God is that he gives it to us as a gift. I think a great thing for us to be praying as we approach Christmas would be that as we, we remember Jesus coming, we would, we would truly see that this is why he came, to make a perfect marriage between him and his people for the rest of time. To make a home perfect for us to live with him as our God forevermore. A home without tears. A home without pain. And that he would move our hearts to, like the shepherds, rejoice with great joy in the goodness of our God. Well, let's have a moment's silence and then let me lead us in prayer. Father God, we thank you that you give us this picture because you want us to keep our eyes fixed on what is ahead, what Jesus is going to bring when he returns. Father, please might you encourage each and every one of us. Might you, you help us feel the thirst that we truly have for him. Might we see the beauty of one who would come down from you to quench that thirst, to give his life on a cross for us, to make us beautiful for himself, to enjoy uh, this forever home with you forever.
Father, please might you warm our hearts with this gospel message, we pray this Christmas. Amen.